I think it's important to go through kind of the whole history of what's happened because, you know, you don't realize, like, if you think about the 90s, right, and how excluded amateur artists were from participating. Welcome to the Stolen Hours Podcast. Conversations with known or unknown creatives across the arts. Guests share what they create and the backstories that have made them who they are today. Listen in to help support the community of creators and to find some inspiration of your own. The following is episode 49, the media and culture professor, the writer, Dr. Corinne M. DeLilio. All right, thank you for tuning in to this episode. If you have not yet, please subscribe to the Stolen Hours podcast on your favorite streaming platform, iTunes, good old Google, Amazon, Spotify, anywhere you listen to podcasts. And definitely check out also our website, www.thestolenhourspodcast.com. Follow along on Instagram, and you can see what we're doing at the Stolen Hours Podcast. All right, I'm excited to share this episode with you, which is with Corinne Delilio, Dr. Delilio, who is indeed my sister and a professor at Coastal Carolina University, expert in media and culture. She's about to release a book called Interactive Media and Society. So we discuss much of the content of that book in relation to media, creating media, being a creative, trying to navigate those worlds. So she gives us the history, the advice, and all things media. So great conversation. Enjoy. Today on The Stolen Hours, we have Dr. Corinne Marie DeLilio, who is a, an assistant professor in the Department of Communication, Media, and Culture at Coastal Carolina University. Um, she's worked professionally for eight years in education and outreach with a specialization in digital web design. Her research focuses on the effects and impacts of interactive media and online communication. She developed an original method for mapping and visualizing informal, asynchronous online discussions, which she has used for analysis in a variety of contexts, including fan communities, higher education, citizen discussions of news, etc. Her work has been published in the International Journal on E-Learning, the Journal of Digital and Media Literacy, uh, Communication Teacher, and International Journal of Knowledge, Technology, and Society. And uh, it's a pleasure to have on the podcast today my sister, who is a brilliantly educated academic as well as um, expert on media and so I just wanted to have her be part of my media so thank you for coming on sis thanks for having me I'm glad to be a part of your interactive media yes ex- uh, excursion <laughs> yeah yeah well it's been fun it's been uh I you know it's, I, I think back to uh when we were kids um our little radio recordings that we did with our brother Michael <laughs> episode mm-hmm. one episode one so since i had him on we yeah, definitely had to have you on here as well and so That's uh right. yeah thinking back to those early just just recordings I, I recently connected the dots to that recording session we did which was like a i don't know a little 10 second radio thing we did with with mike and uh i was telling ezzy about it my daughter of, as you who you know well 
and uh, <laughs> and I uh, I realized oh that's probably my like first like kind of taste of recording sound and I think it was just I always look fondly back on that I don't know if you do as well I do yeah I remember um, I mean we were we had the eighties technology so we. Yes. You had the tapes that you'd record, and then sometimes you could take your tapes from albums that you didn't like anymore and put tape over the little notes <laughs> yes. so they could turn into recording tapes. I forgot about that. Yeah, you could turn them into recording tapes. That was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> we had, yes, we had our... And Mike, Mike came on as the uh, DJ of... You know, he was like the, the oldest and he was the DJ and he yeah. was like talking about uh, using the big words like cornucopia of good music or something yeah, t- like today that. Today we'll have a cornucopia of good music. I think we were like the uh, just like singing songs. I kind of remember that. Like we That's just, right. We were like the introduction jingle. And yes. then I was like, ding dong or something like that. <laughs> do, do me a favor and open the door. I wonder I, how old we were. I have no exactly. idea. Yeah. Yeah. But I I do. Yeah. That's it's so interesting how a memory can stick with you. And that one, which is not a photograph, is is something that is burned into my memory. Even the words cornucopia of good music will forever. Yeah, it's me. true. The memory is actually not visual. Like, I, I guess I we I'm assuming we recorded it in the basement. Yes. But yes. I, I don't really remember. Like, I don't have a visual of it. I just can hear the, the audio of it. It's yeah, funny. I feel like we did it up in the living room. But either way, really? it's, just, it's just cool. <laughs> I just think just yeah, media in general, like the fact that we have it recorded, it does, you know, like help memory, you know, and mm-hmm. I, so I must have heard it enough to like just burn it into my brain. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Anyway, that that being uh yeah our little like first original creation in media. So it's kind of cool mm-hmm. to be here many many years later. Um, probably over three decades or more. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, well, it may be four over four decades to be honest. And, uh, yeah, we're getting close to it. <laughs> yes, and you at this point a uh, PhD in new media, as which is what it was called when you finished that up, and now I've been a professor at uh, Coastal Carolina. For a bunch of years and i guess you started your um university life what was it at rowan rowan is that where you were yes i taught at rowan for a year and then i've been at coastal since 2011 so yeah Yeah. and then i know your original introduction into education and really creating media and even web page stuff was at rutgers where you got Mm -hmm. your phd correct Yes, I worked at the Institute of Marine and Coastal Sciences and did a whole bunch of stuff for them, which involved which involved also creating like online modules for teachers to use in their classrooms and websites like Striper Tracker, where they could track stripers across, along oh, yeah. the coast and nice. stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> so a lot of like uh, just yeah new new uh, technology to support like data collection as well as teaching, which. Nowadays, it's like amazing to think that that was a new thing when you're doing that, that these interactive mm-hmm. um, classrooms and uh, yeah, online teaching was kind of the, a brand new thing back then. Now it yeah. was something we all depended on in our pandemic lives. I know. Amazing. I know. I remember my first online class was in grad school. It was yeah. media ethics. And uh, yeah, it's a, it was a whole new world. And but I, I, I enjoyed it. I mean, it's not the same as in the classroom, but yeah, I teach a lot of online classes still. And I taught I taught at Capella University online for a few years and That's right. it yeah. has its benefits. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's it's interesting to think what you're teaching 
is actually through platforms that you're teaching about and and, and even yes. being critical of and you know what it, you know and analyzing whether or not like this form of education is actually beneficial and in terms of uh you know as good as in person all those kinds of things i'm sure come up in your searching um and i know that you recently uh are, are just putting a book together can you tell us about the book before we get into anything else Yes, it is called Interactive Media and Society, and it's actually based on a class that I've been teaching all those years that we just talked about. I actually taught it for the first time um, at Rowan University. I, you know, I was hired and the first year teaching, they just throw you into the fire and they said, well, we want you to teach introduction to new media. And um, I was like, well, I guess I'll just try some things out. And I was amazed that they worked. Yeah, yes, yeah. <laughs> you get into the classroom and you're like, they're doing what I told them to do. Um, <laughs> But, uh, but yeah, so that was where it first started. And then I've just kind of over the last 11 years kind of refined that class. Obviously, you have to update it every year because it's a very current topic that's constantly sure. changing. But I felt like I had a really good foundation for like the, the way it should be taught. And I know a lot of people are teaching this class um, in universities around the country, around the world. And I felt like I personally have not found a good undergraduate level text. Mm. Um, I, I was having my students read books that were, you know, and readings that were sometimes too advanced for them or sometimes too old and outdated. And, you know, I was trying to cobble together a bunch of stuff. And I was like, I, I just need to write this book that I need them yeah. to read. <laughs> and so I started to, you know, think about what that would look like. And plus, because I had taught the class online, I had a lot of written materials already. Yeah. So it's, it's basically like every chapter, there's 14 chapters in the book. The class is essentially 14 weeks of content. So it just works with the weeks of the class. Wow. Um, that's yeah. how I teach it. So, yeah, that's great. So I love that, that there's a lot of people, yeah, who, who write the book that they are looking for, you know, and it's nice mm -hmm. to hear like, this was writing the textbook that you were looking for that just wasn't there. Yeah, it's not really a textbook. Though. That's the thing. Like sure. when I pitched it, I was like, I, I wanted to do a textbook. And then I got in touch with this uh, at a conference, this person, this agent at Lexington. And I was yeah. like, well, it's, what I want to do is kind of a textbook. She's like, we don't really do textbooks, but we're really interested in it. And so nice. the way I plan to use it is is like the book for the class. And um, yeah, I mean, I don't always have textbooks in my classes. Anyway, sure. Yeah, so. I guess that's that's real. Like, so I think my best class is if you weren't getting a textbook, you might be getting three books that were all really good reads for the content. So that's it. Yeah, those are always my favorites. Yeah, that makes sense. And then and, and then it's a more interesting read. It's not just a reference book. It's right. definitely more of a, yeah, an interesting read that is really bringing in lively conversation, which is kind of a nice idea. Conversation yeah. starter and conversation informer. That's great. Yes. And my so, peer reviewer noted, I had a peer reviewer for the text and they, they're anonymous. So I don't know who it was, but they noted okay. that I end every chat. I, I introduce each chapter with like a current example that kind of demonstrates the themes of what is going to be talked about. Yeah. But I end, I end each chapter with like takeaways and what essentially could be conversation starters for in class, like great, yeah. pract practical things nice. to think about. Nice. Yeah, very cool. I love that. Yeah. And so again, what's the name of the book? So we have it in our brains. It is Interactive Media and Society. It will be coming out from Lexington Books, which is a division of uh, Roman and Littlefield. And it should be coming out this year. I don't know when exactly. Nice. Very good. So it's in the peer review process still, or is it already past that? It is past peer review. It is past 
revisions to address the peer review, and now it is in typesetting stage. So they're going to uh, be putting it into the proper format for the book because right now it's just Word documents. And um, yeah, then I have to. Everyone's going to proofread it. They're going to proofread it. I'm going to proofread it, and then, then I have to index it, and then it should be good to go. Nice, nice. All right. So what in that book that you know you're writing? And publishing in 2000, finishing writing in 2021, 2021 mostly, right? And or how long have you been writing? Yeah, actually, I wrote most of it in the summer of 2020. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, because I had um, a book contract signed it in February, and I was like, great, I'll get sabbatical, I'll get scholarly reassignment. Like you can have a semester taken off if you have oh, a yeah, big yeah. project that you're working on. And then, like uh, two weeks later, COVID. <laughs> So and they were like, no scholarly reassignment until yeah. we figured this whole situation out. And so I was like, I guess I have to write it in the summer. Yeah. Um, so I think I wrote about nine chapters that summer. And then I wrote the rest over the course of the academic, the next academic year. So I finished okay. it April. It's hard to write during the academic year. So I got sure. I got the last, the last of it written and finished it April 30th, 2021. And then nice. the peer review and the revisions. And then it was done. All right, so we have this brand new book, um, but you said uh, 11 years ago you started teaching the class that the book is based on. I'm just wondering what what has been consistent since the beginning of your class that, that you know, from those, wow, this is working with my students, they're learning from this, to, you know, writing the book, you know, in 2020, 21. Um, what, what, what ended up kind of after the dust settled of a lot of real fast moves in the last decade of media changing and da-da-da-da? You know, it's mm. like there's so many things, but I wonder what kind of like is the tried and true like topics that you will continually always bring up. And maybe the chapters are even set. That was what it was there in the beginning. And it's just kind of fleshed out even more and more. Tell me yeah, about that. I feel like the first four chapters are kind of foundational because they, you know, it covers like I call, like I said, I call it interactive media. So it covers why I call it interactive media, which is basically, you know, the one, the one feature of all of these tools, because they're so different, right? But it's the one feature of all these tools that they have in common. And when, when it used to be called new media, um, when it first came out, they would say, uh, there was, a, there was a writer named Lev Manovich who, who said, yeah, it doesn't really make sense to use interactive because it's computer. They're all computer based, and that means the same thing. But today, it's not. I mean, it's it is all a computer, but it doesn't all look like a computer. Um, you know, you're, you've got watches, you've got phones, you've got you know, you know, VR. You've got all sorts of things um, that you don't necessarily. And then you know, they talk about the Internet of Things. You know, there'll be there's there's refrigerators and telephones and uh, I mean I mean tele not telephones, countertops and all these different things yeah, that yeah. Um, there'll be screens on and you'll be interacting with. And now we're even talking about, you know, implantable things. And so the, the internet of, of biology. Um, yeah. And so it's, it doesn't all seem like a computer anymore. And so I feel like interactive is the right term for all of it because yeah. it's not just social media. It's, you know, it's not emerging anymore. It's not new anymore. Um, digital is good, but I do feel like there are other design principles, which I, I have, I flesh out in the first chapter that need to be considered. Like it's also networked and it's also, yeah. you know, data, data based. And so, uh, so that's the first chapter, just kind of hashing through all that terminology. And then I go into, um, a little kind of like where we've been 
like what it used to be like because students don't yeah. know that anymore. They don't, you know, we were, sure. we were grown adults when everything changed, but they mm. weren't. Um, and so why this is so different, why it was so revolutionary. And then there's two chapters on groups and networks that really get into um, the way that online groups and networks are the same and different than offline groups and networks and um, the way that they kind of codify a lot of the social processes that we have always engaged in as humans, but, um, you know, are now very visible to everyone and, um, you know, make things bigger and make them more public and make them amplified and all of that. So the first four chapters are, have been pretty consistent across, across the years. Um, and then what changes is I start to get into topical, you know, outcomes. So we talk about citizen media and um, amateur art, you know, amateur art and creativity and um, activism and, you know, things like branding and marketing. Um, so there's like a chapter on on each of those. And then um, it kind of ends with um, the challenges of industry dealing and, and most institutions really at this point dealing with the changes that have been brought about how they are failing to deal with them properly or could deal with them better, um, what the concerns are, what the legal issues are. And, and then um, the final chapter is like considerations for the future. So the, the first three, the first four chapters really have been very consistent. Everything else is constantly changing. Nice. Um, and probably the most, the most change I've seen, especially in the last few years, as you kind of alluded to is um, the approach that the social media companies are taking yeah, with yeah. respect to their users, because for the first decade, they were just like, yeah, do whatever you want, you know, as long as it's yeah. not illegal. Um, and now it's now it's become, you know, more and more pressure on them and more and more acceptance of them to say, OK, we're going to take this down. We're going to take that down and sure, yeah. um, manage what's on their sites more like uh, an editor would. Yeah. And then it. it yeah. So so I always talk about. uh you know, local news disappearing in newspapers. And the only thing really left is like the Facebooks and the, you know, the, the moms group, you know, about talking about school happenings or whatever. So like local happenings, even to the degree where like the, the police are informing us on Facebook about a road being closed or something, you know, about mm -hmm. um, elections, who's going to be running for what, you know, and, and a lot of it is just this very kind of, um, mess of yeah, just people's opinions with some facts snuck in. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, yes. But at the same time, now you have the the media company, which I guess there was always this on some level with like the major networks, you know, editing news and having similar news stories across seven different networks, you know. Uh, but now yeah. being this behemoth of a of a of a company where there's someone in charge and someone's who has their own politics and someone who is being influenced or pushed by politicians even to like, you know, edit or censor or, or cancel or whatever they do. And so all that mm -hmm. is, is very real. And so even the, yeah, the local newspaper being gone, there's kind of not a local editor, but now it's like this almost, uh, yeah, like a business person, not even a media person. Well, but they are a media person because they've created tons of media um, platforms but they mm -hmm. get to decide what we get to hear and what we don't. And then not to mention, which I'm sure we can bring up and talk about further, um, the AI formulas that are determining what people get to read and see and hear. And 
even yeah. get to get pushed out the door further and further and further. So mm -hmm. it's, it's crazy. I mean, it's this is this whole world of media now is so powerful and 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 nuanced. And I, I do think that interactive is a very good word. So I'll, I'll agree with you. It's a good name for this media, um, especially as I as I talk to my students, it saying go on to the Internet is a very different thing than saying, you know, Instagram. It's like a different plat. It's a totally different mindset, like the way that he use their, you know, Snapchats and Instagrams and whatever, you know, their their gamer uh, you know, platforms and interacting with each other those ways. And each one is like particular to certain groups that they hang out with even and even particular to like certain types of communication. And then there's the Internet, which is like almost old school, you know, like a mind <laughs> like. Oh, you mean I got to type in www? All right, there's, a, there's an extra step there that they're not used to doing because it's not mm -hmm. a direct direct connection to through an app. Um, yeah, even like uh, yeah, like having to like navigate a tab. You know, all those things are much more complicated. Um, um, the internet as a tool, something they're interacting with, is much more um, takes a little bit more effort than than the apps do. You know, app is like yes. go go everything's go like all right plus sign post write some words okay hashtag some things and then good um and then to respond it's often just heart or like or or respond with the picture yourself you know trend trending pictures uh everybody's put posting selfies you know to everybody's you know showing something deviant that they're doing whatever it is <laughs> it's like uh just the chaos of like the trends um which sometimes are sparked by some unknown you know which could very well mm -hmm. be you know, you know, it could be some uh, outside force. It could be another country. It could be whatever, you know, somebody trying to yeah. you know, disrupt culture and it becomes a trend, which is really interesting. So, I mean, it's 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 such a behemoth. It's such a massive thing. And it's kind of awesome that you can in 14 chapters try to simplify it for a student who's so like ever present in it, but not thinking about the structure of it or what it is or what the power of it is in terms of like people who are in charge or people who are using it really powerfully or um people who are using it for you know propaganda whatever so it's kind of cool you can yeah. break it down break it down and make them think okay all right i'm not just posting here there's a whole algorithm that's going to be responding to this there's a whole um i guess recording device that's recording this all those levels of like media being um, you know, not just fun and games, I guess, but what we could say. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, the book really, every chapter could be its own course. I mean, it's, it's one of those things where yeah. this, is, this is an overview, but um, you could really go in depth with every topic. And, um, you know, it, I really, the I don't bring it up till the final chapter of the book, but really the whole book is driven by the concept of critical digital literacy, yeah. which is not just digital literacy, just like showing them how to use tools and, you know, a lot of stuff that they already kind of know how to do, but yeah. really to think about that critically. And so they, they need to get out of the everyday and the mundane and all the stuff that's invisible to them because it's mm -hmm. so ever present, you know, it's like, does a fish know it's wet? Does it know it's in water? Do they know that they're actually immersed in this stuff? Yeah. But, you know, finding ways to like, bring them out of that and think like that's why in the, in the beginning of the book it starts with like how things used to be um and then you know throughout the book i'm always kind of bringing up 
um, what's coming next or ways that you can sort of check yourself as you're using, yeah, as you're yeah, using yeah. these tools. Um, nice. and, and so it, really the whole idea behind the book is to give them not really specifics of any individual tool, but like principles that they can apply, however things evolve. Yeah. You know, whether the next thing is, you know, blockchain based, you know, content <laughs> creation yeah. or whatever it is, yeah. um, they can they can still apply these principles and say, oh, wait, I can step out of this and I can see the bigger picture here and understand what's possibly really going on here and think critically sure. about it. Yeah, I mean, I think I think anytime if, if you have you know, these are students, uh, I guess, sometimes in the major right of media, mm -hmm. of media communications, whatever they are. Is it is yeah. this that type of class, or is this just a, like a introduction for anybody? It's, a, it's an anybody class, but it is a higher level class, and okay. um, there are certain majors that uh, have it as one of the options that are media based. So yeah. yeah, so it's it's really to to deconstruct something that's so familiar. I I, uh, I my bad analogy for this is when I built pools for a summer. And I, every time I swim in a pool now, I think about how it was made, even though mm. like swimming is not something anybody's thinking about the pool. Nobody's thinking about how the pool is made unless the pool is falling apart. So, right. but when a, when a pool is in working order, you're just enjoying swimming and you're throwing, you know, throwing your kids, whatever, you're just swimming or you're, as a kid, you're just like not at all conscious of anything, but then this is the most awesome thing ever. Um, yeah. But as a builder of pools, just from one summer of doing that, like literally two months of my life, Ever since then, for the last, for the last yeah three decades after that, um, I think about the construction of the pool to where yeah. there's been times where I'm swimming and I fix something even like I put the push <laughs> I push the liner back in because I know how to or you know whatever it is like oh they got to clean the filter out like I'm thinking about that you know deconstructed version of like literally the vermiculite underneath the vinyl you know of, of the right. pool and. And, uh, yeah, of course, I only know how to build like two types of pools because that was only one summer. But there's I even the ones I don't know how to build. I'm like thinking about oh, how do they do this? So it's it's <laughs> that reality of critical thinking introduced by spelling out the very basic things that build the thing that you're just always interacting with. And that, therefore, makes you critical just because you, you know things. And then second right. level, it sounds like you're. You're giving kind of like survival tips of how not to be just a pawn of the thing you're using, which sounds interesting too. And then mm -hmm. at the same time, yeah, it seems like such a people's device. A lot of the social media, like the people are in charge, which I know you get into that in the book too, which is even as you mentioned, artists and artists creating, using even interactive things or just promoting their own stuff. There's that grassroots element, but at the same time there is, uh, you know, algorithms or, decision-making that is on this upper level of people in charge um, who may very well be saying, no, you can't be on here anymore or flagging yeah. you. I think in the, in the amateur media chapter, which is really focused on like entertainment media and art and the citizen media, which is more focused on news and journalism, I think it's important to go through kind of the whole history of what's happened because, you know, you don't realize, like if you think about, the 90s, right? And how excluded amateur artists were from mm. participating. And I mean, your podcast is all about these people who found like audiences online and, and can find, you know, going out to the whole world, they can find people who are interested in their little niche. 
Um, whereas you couldn't have done that before because you would have had to get on television or somehow, right. <laughs> with your stuff. Um, yeah. cause it was all just one way. It was this one to many information flow. So it had to come, it was centralized. It had to come from a central source. And so, and, and then with news, it's the same thing. It's, you know, we just had these channels that we would all watch and we'd all watch the same few channels and we would get the same information. And then all of a sudden, other people were saying, well, hold on a minute. Like I live in that town and what yeah. they're saying isn't exactly what's going on. And in fact, I hear some video to show you. Um, mm. And, and so it, it decentralized everything. And at, at a point in history when media was becoming so consolidated and so centralized because we, you know, it sort of spread out and, and got re-centralized as um, it ended up being like what they call the big six media corporations that own 90% of the media, the professional media you see is owned by six corporations. And so it was yeah. like right at that point where people were just getting so frustrated with that and felt so marginalized from the whole process that they didn't even, couldn't even care. You know, Gen X, right? It's the apathetic generation. Sure. <laughs> it's like, we, we didn't have a choice. We really couldn't care. So that's why we're so apathetic. But, um, but then it, this all came out and, and decentralized everything. And now we're seeing in the current moment, a re-centralization again, like all the, all the newer media companies are also converging and consolidating. Mm -hmm. and, and even with the older media companies, like, um, like sure. Amazon and Washington post, you know, owned by the same yeah, guy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. it's just, so it's just, it's re-centralizing again. And then as soon as it starts re-centralizing, what happens, they start coming in and controlling content again. So mm -hmm. it's, it's important to go through that whole history but, you know, it's interesting because people, when it comes to news, people are so, you know, people are split. I mean, there's definitely a lot of people who are like, this is censorship. This is supposed to be the public sphere. We should all have a voice. We should all have a say. But then there's a lot of outspoken voices that are saying, well, you know, and there are real concerns, obviously, you know, yeah, we, don't yeah. want, we don't want people getting bullying and bullied and harassed. I mean, yeah. the millennials, that was like their childhood was just getting bullied and harassed online. Yeah. Um, so we don't want all these awful things happening. Um but at the same time, with the artwork, you know, when artwork first started coming online and a lot of it was pop culture based, there was all these copyright wars and everyone's like, well, the, they just seem to give up on copyright. Like the, the general sentiment is who cares about copyright? Let people do what they want yeah. when it comes to art. But when it comes to information, you know, the sentiment is shifting from let people share what they want and say what they want. Information wants to be free to we need to control this because it's out of hand. Yeah, well, yeah, so the, the people, people wanting, you know, um, you know, truth telling is so interesting right now. It's a, at some point you realize like there's never a, a full context truth, no matter how well the history book is written, right? So there's there's mm -hmm. that kind of like I think that kind of like nuanced, like oh, I just realized while I'm in college here, you know, that a lot of people came there and they like, oh, this is not really the full context truth. And now that's become a very mainstream thought on either side of politics, either side of any, you know, religious, not religious is like all of this, like complete skepticism to the point where there is no truth, uh, even if there is, you know, a complete, you know, emotional truth to reality, which all of us have in common, or even a truth beyond, you know, humanity, you know, divine truth, whatever. But there is in terms of like our information, whatever side you come from there's some sort of, you know, distrust in the truth that's being presented. And so facts often with agenda, you know, okay, I don't trust that fact anymore. Or at the same time, we have, uh, 
you know, um, you know, absolutely editorialized, uh, full of facts, you know, opinion essays, which, you know, are now um, being presented as news, whatever. And at the same time, you know, people are, are you know, okay, I'm, I'm buying all that, but oh, wait, uh, I don't trust the, uh, anybody who criticizes this, I don't trust that fact because it's not the truth that I believe. It's like, whatever, the truth is just kind of like played with and, and it's almost like a post-truth media empire where no matter which side you're on, you don't trust something you just read that was presented as truth. And so, and then in the end, okay, we're going to block out all these things or someone's going to decide to block out all these things that are not true, but then wait, it seems like there's an agenda built in that's not giving freedom for voice. Oh, it's just chaos. So yes. <laughs> I, I, I appreciate the fact that you try to tackle all this and make us think about it. Although I, I, I guess part of me is like, well, what the heck? <laughs> what do we got? So I, I know there's alternate platforms that are outside of the major companies, which I know mm-hmm. that's the benefit of the internet. There's always another like back alleyway to have another i mean even I, I think even back to the 90s though there were these little like fanzines or yes, you know, like yeah. inter- independently produced even music or, or art that was only going to a, surely a small audience although it did go as big as like tower records selling them you know mm-hmm. a fanzine so there was that like little subculture kind of media world um to counter i guess the the which was so centralized, you know, mass media world, right on. Um, yeah, the fans were the first internet users. They were internet users before there was an internet. You know, yeah, the well, hardcore I, fans. Sure. I mean, I think there's. I think uh, yeah, there was. Um, you know, uh, Radiolab put out that uh, mixtape um, series, which basically they're saying the the original internet creators were mixtape creators on a cassette. The cassette mm-hmm. tape. The cassette tape was the first internet. Which even yeah, I think yeah, like think of how computers were working at some point. It was on magnetic tape, you know. It's like yeah, the, the cassette tape with scotch tape over the over yeah, the yeah. sides exactly. that you could record onto it's, it. Exactly. So so this this idea, yeah, like those um, independent creators um, or people like creating yeah their own collections were the first mm-hmm. of the internet, <laughs> which is kind of amazing thought. I, I love thinking that deep and that far, and yeah. how. And therefore, I, I do think there's always hope for a voice to have a voice, you know, um, mm-hmm. even if this is, again, a centralized time, which is crazy. Yes, yeah, <laughs> definitely. Um, well, one of the things I write in the book is um, really what we need to advocate for is what's called interoperability, where the whatever the platform is, right, that there's a mechanism by which it can work with other platforms. So like you could be like you could have your podcast and you wouldn't have to sit there and make a Twitter post and make a Facebook post and make a, you know, you could just sort of like be on all the platforms and choose how you want to use them. And, you know, for you, it would be an experience of just reaching your audience through whatever, whatever, but, but to do that, the platforms have to work together and they have to deconstruct themselves a little bit to be able to allow the user more control, even like with content moderation, right? Like, I mean, they're deciding all these things and their algorithms are really deciding it. And so you yeah. do things like you, you want to take down racist language and you end up, you know, blocking 
activists against racism because <laughs> you know what I mean? Because it's just these, these dumb tools that are blocking things and they do have people who get involved, but it's such, such a huge sea of content. It's impossible to moderate it all. Sure. But if you could have people give people that control, allow everything and give people the control to say, I want to see this kind of stuff and I don't want to see that kind of stuff. You yeah, know, yeah. give them those those third party apps that you can then like add on to whatever it is that you're using to be able to either post or get content sure. in an interoperable way. Oh, so you're saying so ultimately like a yeah, an outside thing that could let you opt in or opt out of stuff. Yeah, like if someone made a you know, an add on for Facebook that said, like you just you want to see the content you want to see everything and you yeah. only want to see it in order without it being you know put it here's stuff that you might like and you don't want these recommendations you just want to see it in order and you want to see everything you could have an add-on that does that or if you want to have it you know just totally tailored to everything that you click on you could mm -hmm. say okay just give me stuff that i click on and more of that yeah, more, <laughs> of that, more of that <laughs> which which you know i don't really like those kinds of things because you end up you know there's stuff that you might click on more often <laughs> that isn't really as good for you as this as getting more diverse content sure. and you know having having a I, I try to intentionally expose myself to a diversity of perspectives like things I agree with things I disagree with but of course I'm going to click on the things I agree with more sure, but I don't want sure. that to result in all the things I disagree with disappearing completely yeah. I, had, I had a very interesting experiment um on the day of you know January 6th last year with the storming of the Capitol um Cause I heard about it cause I had stopped listening to news and uh, so I didn't really know what was going on. And it was, I think my sister-in-law called and told us what was going on. And I just purposely waited. Like I was like, I'm just going to wait before I go and look, you know, I, I, I know it was a major happening. I know I should have, there's going to be that day when someone says, where were you when this happened? And to be honest, I, I don't know because I purposely, I just remember this. I paused, I kept doing the work I was doing. And about four hours later, I went and looked at like every, you know, platform in terms of, you know, um, from Newsmax to Fox to CNN to NPR to this to that. And I was amazed at the range of reporting on that day. There was mm -hmm. only, you know, it was four hours after it happened. Um, there was only one one news outfit that actually had a first person account. Everything mm -hmm. was that everything was editorialism. Everything was like. D defining what happened based on their their politics edge and their angle and there was only one that actually interviewed a person on the ground i'm like well there's old school news thank god <laughs> yeah. you know like old school investigation was you you actually go and interview people who were involved with this and i know it's mm -hmm. still going on so that was hard to pull off but the amount of conclusions that had been made four hours later without any first person accounts or interviews or anything like that i was like you remember when news used to take, you know, a, a day for it to come out because you were fact checking everything. Now it's yeah. just like Im the immediacy of news. And surely there's boots on the ground and a bunch of people reporting, including citizens. But there was yeah, so I many, mean, so many conclusions being made four hours later that were very like, oh, my goodness, I came this. These people are saying this. Uh, and it was so interesting. I mean, even even the coolest thing I could say is that at least there was a little bit of nuance in terms of like the far right wing um, outfit was actually saying something a little like nuanced, like, oh, we don't approve that part of this, but yeah, this is why this happened. And then on the far left, far left, there was a, a little bit of nuance, but not really. 
And then in terms of like, there was the one who was actually doing investigative reporting. I was like, thank God that you exist. Because I was just like, I don't want to look at news at all unless there's at least a first person account. Because, you know, I mean, not that that always matters because you get a bunch of opinionated people on the ground who are the first person mm-hmm. interview. But there was something at least that was like profound about old school investigative reporting still happening instead of just editorializing, which yeah. it fully seemed like everywhere else. For sure. Yeah. I mean, there's a there's a great website called All Sides where they take okay. like events that are happening in the, you know, big events or, you know, issues or whatever. And they pull they have a categorization for every news outlet that's out there. So it's like, is this you know, left, right, middle, is it far left? Is it far right? So they have all these categorizations and then they pull from a right source, a left source and a center source on every topic. And you can see the headlines. And so sometimes, yeah, sometimes the headlines might be like all the same. Like it's just something like, uh, you know, it happened. Yeah. Yeah. Like the Omicron variant is out. And then sometimes if it's a, you could tell when it's a politicized issue because they will be wildly different. And sometimes you don't, you have one side that's not even talking about it at all. So all you have is like uh, right and center or center and left, but the, <laughs> there's no headline from the other side. Wow, and yeah. so it's amazing to, to look at that and see um, how differently things are covered. But one of the, one of the arguments I make in the book is that, you know, the professional media outlets, the corporate media outlets, let's call them, have been so threatened by others coming in and having a voice that they're trying, they're trying so hard to fight that. And it's like the disinformation and all this stuff. And we know you're more responsible. So good, be responsible. But it doesn't mean that having a diversity of content is a bad thing, as long as people expose themselves to that diversity, you know, which I always try to do. And I'm so mad because I had like the perfectly curated Twitter feed, but I had to get off that site because I was like, no more technological oligarchy. I can't be a part of this. <laughs> oh, you threw, oh you, that's so interesting. Yeah, I understand. Yeah, I had to get off of it because it was just, I mean, if you look at, because um, what happened was it was the beginning of 2021 and I found an article from early, early on in the primary process from, I want to say it was BuzzFeed. Or maybe it was TechCrunch. I don't know. It was from somewhere. And they basically were like saying, here's the candidates that are friendly to tech. And here's the candidates that aren't. And guess which ones were shown really favorably and ended up getting into office? (laughs) The ones that were friendly to tech. And I'm like, I don't know that I can support this. I have to get off this website. But I did. I had like I followed like over a thousand people and it was like across the boards, across the spectrum. And it was it was perfect. But Uh, but <laughs> it ruined it for so, me. So you're back to all sides. Was it all sides.com? Yeah, also, I mean, it's not really a social media site. It's just a news site, but I sure, do look yeah. at it. I have the app on my phone. I did finally join Reddit. I, I was, I've researched Reddit for years and I never joined it. And people are always like, oh, you're on Reddit. We know you are. But I never was. And yeah. I finally joined Reddit because I was like, I need something. But the thing yeah. about Reddit is they have these crazy moderators who will say, if you've even joined, a certain forum or po- ever posted in that forum, you're banned from participating in our forum, oh, which wow. it's like yeah. everyone wants to interfere with my ability to be diverse in the content that I consume. <laughs> yeah. It's very annoying. Yeah. I, I, it's, it's, it's so interesting. I mean, even as you describe that, it's like, that's a realization. Wow. Okay. 
Yeah, um, because that's the healthy way to do it. Like, that's what I recommend in my book. Like, you have to expose yourself to all sides. You can't just say that side is stupid and I'm going to stick my head in the hand in the sand to their existence. Yep. You have to know what they're saying and what they're thinking. Yeah. And it really not only does it help you to see them more as humans, but it also helps you to understand their arguments so you can argue against them better. Sure, sure. And and, and so it's, it's the inability of like modern day. I, I do think this is a worldwide problem, but America is what we know. So the modern day American problem of not listening to anybody else. You just are mm -hmm. speaking like you're speaking what you have to say. And even when you're arguing, you're like barely hearing what they're having to say. You're just reiterating what you're saying and you're not really hearing. So there's that difficulty of hearing. And I do fear that like we as just like on the ground um, people or even grassroots um, movements are mimicking the mainstream movements. So like you got the Democratic platform, the Republican yes. platform, which are very much so both of them are extreme in my mind. I'm a, I'm such a like a centrist, and it's not great for making arguments as an independent. But but I I think it's just offensive to to see both platforms because they're both extreme. And then there's no nuance for all the people who are in between. Like if you're pro life and a Democrat, you're not a Democrat anymore. You know, there's like all these lines. You know, like that that are just like you're not allowed to be this. And I think even the grassroots movements, which did become some of them mainstream. It's, it's almost like a platform. I'm like, wait, like, no, let your let your movement be nuanced and human. Let people mm -hmm. tell their human stories so they don't just have to, like, wave a flag and be a, a flag bearer for the movement. They're allowed to tell their story. And that's what I really want, even doing this podcast, which I know is a humble endeavor. It's just about telling people telling their story and having a voice from their experience um, and not just being accosted into the platform, you know, I guess if I started to do the tenets of the stolen hours, you know, for you to be a member of this community, you must believe this, this and this or else we can't publish your episode. That would be where I start to mimic the mainstream movements, which are so much about you must subscribe to this platform, even if it's not a political platform. It's like, wait, I can't be that unless I subscribe to that. It doesn't make sense. I, I feel yeah. like it's a real it's 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 so much about like. I guess it's part of the it's the Twitter problem, maybe even like you're only allowed a certain amount of characters. So it's got to be a platform rather than just a nuanced human conversation. Well, see, here's what I think. I think, you know, like I was talking about earlier, like we came out of this age of one way broadcast media. And so that was all we knew from like the 1950s on. There was no like, you know, like nuanced debates happening between intellectuals and in any spaces between politicians, even over time, the presidential debates got increasingly like, just give me your sound bites. You have one minute, <laughs> you know, yeah. and it just became all about this sort of unnuanced, like just branding exercise. And so we got, you know, all of us who are alive today grew up with some version of that, um, except for the, you know, kids who were born after 2000. But, um, but then we got this new media and we all got, we all became a media platform. But all we know about being a media platform is talking, right? I'm a talking head, I'm talking on this podcast and I'm just not listening to anybody. There's, mm -hmm. no, there's no listening happening. And even though you have this direct access to this audience and some of the, some of the kind of grassroots media do do this, right? Mm -hmm. they, they work collaboratively with their audience they say, yeah. okay, we're co-creating this, you know, we're co-creating this, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, and they listen to voices and they, you know, bring up voices from their audience and all that. But for the most part, everyone's just up there. And this is my, this is my network. 
and here's what I think, and I'm just yeah. going to shout it until I'm blue in the face, oh, wow. and I don't care about other people's responses to that. And one of the arguments I make in the book is that we have to start listening. We have to start learning the art of listening again and understanding that that is a part of being a responsible citizen sure. and, and being a part of this whole process. And, um, you know, uh, there's a, a guy named Pierre Levy. He wrote a book called Collective Intelligence in 1997. It's like this dense, theo theo not theological, philosophical, yeah. <laughs> philosophical text on how when we all can access each other in these large online groups, we're going to develop this kind of collective intelligence about the world. Uh, but yeah. he says in the book, he says, it's, it's going to take us some time to figure out how to do it. There's going to be like right. a growing period where we're like not understanding what's happening and we're not doing it right. But I think we're in the adolescence right now. And I'm hoping that we can mature out of that and start to learn to listen. And even journalists themselves, I, in the book, I say, you know, if you're a professional journalist, you can lead in this kind of effort. You can show what it means to listen to your audience. And, and there are, there's um, a, a group called Harkin, which means to listen. And, and they go out and they ask their audience ahead of time, what are the questions you want us to investigate? So mm -hmm. it's not just like, what yeah. do you think about what we said? It's tell yeah. us what you want to know about. And then they go invest. And they said that generates much more interesting questions than we could ever come up with, with five yeah. of us around the board table. That's great. You know, so, and I even coined a term in the book called journal listeners. Journal listeners. Don't I just, love it. Don't just be a journalist, be a journal listener. Yeah. Well, I think it's, 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 it's a, you know what happened? This is really what happened. There's uh I experienced this just from knowing photojournalism. You know, you got Susan Maselis and you got all the people who, were telling the stories of El Salvador in the eighties, you know, and, and their, they, their, their news or their images were being sent back and then put through the filter of mainstream media and also through the, the machine of America, which was, you know, making political decisions that didn't match up with the way the journalists were presenting the, the very crazy reality of what America was doing that how it affected people. So that my, the most profound image, um, is uh, from I think the the one book I'm thinking of. It's uh, I'm sure that's the photographer's name, Susan Salas. There's a photographer. Uh, I mean, the, the images of a milkman being used as a shield for a a soldier. You know that mm -hmm. is, and he's a government soldier using a citizen as a shield that he's supposed <laughs> to be. He's supposed to be protecting that citizen, but he's using the milkman as a shield um, mm -hmm. against the the rebels. And it's just just like such a pointed, powerful photograph. Those photographs, of course, never made it into the mainstream media. So any sort of um, thing that was sent back was, you know, chosen for the sake of of the, you know, whatever was going to fly, you know, in American um, news. Mm. And so the only way got they got their stuff out was to do basically an artist mindset, which we're going to present our work as an art as art an art piece as a documentary, you know. Um, that tells the story and they just put facts in it. And it was very much so journalism without traditional journalism. And it definitely had an agenda, which was to say like, America is not so clean in this one guys. Um, this is what yeah. we, how much money we pumped in. This is how many weapons we pumped in. And this is the guy that we're supporting is using one of the citizens that we're claiming we're helping as a shield. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and I mean, that's okay. Everyone's got an agenda. We yeah. need to expose ourselves to the different agendas so that we can yes. get a, a more complete picture. There is no, like you said, there's no truth, truth that yes. you can 
fully capture it, in your well, brain. It's the, it's the infallibility of humanity. So both sides of the story, there's there's a problem. And both sides yeah. of the story are actually fighting for the same truth even, uh, or the same same moral stance. Like the same moral, I guess C.S. Lewis said it well, like uh, both sides of a war are often fighting from the same moral compass. You know, like mm -hmm. they're both, they're both like, there's an ultimate truth and we're fighting for it, but we're right. fighting each other. Um, there's that, and then I, I guess you know that's bringing up that that alternate media um, was you know the only way to tell that story was for them to take it and put it out grassroots. So I like this idea of um, I think really investigative journalism had the right tenants. It just was always filtered through this mainstream media kind of filter of like you know well our parent company is Disney, so we have to make sure we don't say that about a certain place in the world because a lot right. of our work is done in that part of the world. I've heard yeah. that interview from a journalist too. I'm like yeah, it was so hard working for this company because they would always filter it, and and even like they were about to go to the front lines of a story, but that story didn't make the mother company look good, so they were told to turn around even though they'd be the first worst person there. And they're yeah. like, the journalist is like, I'm there, I'm on the ground, I'm, I'm interviewing the people, I've got this, i got this. But no, no, turn around because this will make our, our company that owns us look bad. You know, right. like <laughs> there's all of that reality of just, I guess, capitalism. And, or advertisers. And, yeah. I mean, yeah. there's a lot, there's a lot of interests that influence news. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, I think one of the interesting things about the moment we're living in right now is that there's, you've got um, the, the kind of two sides, which I, I, I should. I see as should be informing each other in a more harmonic way. Like yes. the, the journalists could be benefiting from the grassroots like video from January 6th. And then they could say, okay, let's look at these videos from inside, you yeah. know, and let's, let's analyze that rather than making their, you know, editorial claims four hours before they, you know, that even all comes out. But so you, they, the two could really inform each other very well, but what's happening is I feel like the corporate media is digging its heels in to our narrative and our narrative only and any challenge to that narrative is a challenge to our profession i mean they are under challenge you know financially and sure you know all sorts of things that are happening in that in that industry and so they're digging their heels in and they're doing things that are unfortunately for them more obvious to this other world that is talking about everything at a much more highly scrutinized, highly critical level than it ever did previously in history. Uh, so, so you've got like people on the citizen sort of grassroots side saying, Oh my gosh, look how blatant this, this propaganda is. Sure, and if sure. it weren't for us pointing it out, no one would have ever known. So can you believe anything they've ever said throughout history? Sure. <laughs> you know? Sure. Well, and, and, and then, and, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. I was just, I was going to say, and then you're, you're, your statement about how citizens use platforms, they became the new talking head and they are the authority who's not going to listen to anybody in response to that authority. Right. So, so even as they're criticizing this blatant, they're like, wow, this is so blatant, but there's no nuance to like, all right, well, maybe I don't know the full story. Right. <laughs> I mean, not... But there is, there is such a diversity out there now that you can, I mean, you can find people who intentionally, like there's a podcast called Braver Angels, where they bring people from different sides and they have these conversations that can get very tense, yeah. but they want to have the conversation. And, and at least the people who are participating in that are saying, yes, let's have this conversation. And let's not just say that the people on the other side are, you know, unworthy of even speaking to, let alone listening to. 
Yeah. And so you, you can find these more like sort of, and the, the podcast is, format is perfect for that because it's long form audio and you can really sit down and have a conversation, which you never could have done on broadcast news. And, you know, people can sit and listen to it and, you know, listening to something, reading something, listening to something and watching something are all different, use different parts of your brain and you can be more critical and you can be kind of slower and and take a minute and think more when you're listening to something as opposed to watching something and even more so reading something but um, uh, i'm thinking of uh you know the uh, uncomfortable conversations with the black man um do you hear that i've never heard of that no i said it's it's a conversation with um uh i think the guy's name is uh emmanuel akko so he's, he's he's a black man but he has all these conversations with white and black people together about race and they have these oh, intense, I I've seen. Yeah, intense conversations, but it's so nuanced and human. And there's like, you know, it's, it's, it's a gift. I really do feel like it's a, one of those gift uh, media pieces, you know, media collections, just because it is such difficult conversations that people are having and we get to, uh, you know, observe um, and also learn from. And I think it always seems like both parties come out with some understanding um, mm-hmm. that's, that's more nuanced than when they both walked in or vice versa, you know, whatever. So yeah, there's a, there's, there's a great, oh, sorry, go ahead. I was just saying it's, so there's things, there's things out there that do have hope for media. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's a set of documentaries that people in different areas have been putting out. One of them is called listen and E is in parentheses and I can't remember why I think it, maybe it's for education or something, but anyway, they had, uh, she, the documentary filmmaker brings together people on very controversial issues and has yeah. them. Talk, sit and talk and films this, the talk and she she first has them just sort of telling each other about themselves and then she's had them like painting together and then they talk and one of them is um like a gun you know a gun control advocate and a gun rights advocate and the gun control advocate was actually a girl who was in parkland the day okay. that the shooting wow. happened and so it's very emotional very visceral very personal yeah. and um but you can see that they both, like you said before with the C.S. Lewis quote, they both have safety in mind. That is their goal, is safety. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And with the two, the two abortion, um, you know, there was a pro-choice and a pro-life, and they, they both have women's interests yeah. in mind. Like, they both want to help women. And so yeah. it's interesting because it's like, again, the people are so similar, but they don't see it. They don't see each other's humanity until you actually sit down and have those conversations. And so, yeah, I love that kind of media. I think that's the kind of media we need to prop up you know, stop doom scrolling yeah. and, and, and don't just look at pictures of, of fluffy kittens, yeah, but uh, find something that addresses something serious, but in a way that is open-minded to all viewpoints. Sure. So I, that you can actually understand the truth of the situation as close yes. as you can get to it. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the hope, right? So, I mean, I, as you described uh, Gen X, there was this like disillusionment and they just reacted. I feel like modern day generation now from, you know, anybody who's in their early 20s or even late 20s down to the teenagers I you know, I teach and have in my home, there's just a real um, just kind of cynicism and skepticism with everything. And, uh, mm-hmm. and, and, and those who have strong political beliefs, it's almost more toxic, like just so cynical and skeptical of anything that's different than their opinion. And I think mm-hmm. a lot of kids are just somewhere just kind of like uh, don't even want, you know, so a lot of kids don't want to like be on a side sometimes because it's like, well, what do you trust? What do you trust? So there's that same kind of reaction again. 
And so hopefully the next uh, iteration of, you know, culture and humanity, like speaking to each other will be with some ears open. I like that idea. Yes, please. Please Um, let's speak to each other. Yeah. Yeah. And I think of Daryl Davis. He's the um, R&B blues musician who befriended KKK members and then like converted them to get to leave. Yeah. I think I saw something about that. Yeah. I do think there's a, you know, sometimes there is a very right way. You know, this is a better, better way than the other way. And I think he, as a, you know, a black man befriending KKK members and finding common ground humanity wise to befriend them. And then them realizing like, Oh my goodness, what's wrong with me for judging this man because of his skin color. (laughs) And, and then so many, and then him and the, the guy he first befriended, like basically try to pull people out of that insanely cultish world. Um, and, and let people know like, no, 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 there's human, you know, I guess it's the us and them is so strong right now and how much it just has to become us no matter what what agenda you have like if you forget us then then you've just left behind the majority of humanity it's just you you know it's just you and and the 10 people who agree with you for now but in reality humanity will survive and the nuances of humanity will survive and if you're not going to let people tell their story because they just have to subscribe to the platform the platform is going to die Mm-hmm. And I hope to, I hope to God there is a nuanced platform option in future elections and things for us, because I don't know if we can. These platforms seem like they're about to die, to be honest. And that's what they're all desperately grasping for. Yeah. Like it's well, for relevancy. Know, yeah. Uh, there's a couple of things that you said that I, I wanted to talk about. There's have you ever heard of the filter bubble? No. So the filter bubble is like oh, everyone's unique footprint online right so it's it's not just what you've left behind but it's like what you're in so whatever it is that these platforms are showing you and constantly you know reflecting back to you is your own filter bubble and everyone's is different but you end up in these echo chambers that are very tailored to your own perspective and so yeah i mean i have a lot of concerns about these darn kids today, you know, I have, I have a lot of concerns because, because they're always consulting others about their decisions. There's not a lot of like independent, like, who am I and what am I doing? And let me reflect on this and let me think about it without constantly going to my groups through, through my phone. But also they find their echo chambers and echo chambers are such a dangerous thing because the, the bad ideas get normalized and they start to sound very good and then they just get worse and worse and worse until it's just I mean that's like they've done studies on that with eating disorders right like the all the girls who have eating disorders or or men too you know women and men who have eating disorders they join these communities and they share tips and tricks and how to stay skinny and you know be like Uh, you know and and they share pictures that they want to inspire each other with and it's it's horrible because nobody's coming in and saying this is dangerous this is bad for your health and if they do, they immediately get thrown Block, out. Blocked out, yeah. And I saw, and you know, speaking of Reddit, I was on Reddit the other day. I saw this person talking. They were playing a video game, and they're like, I was so disappointed. I was talking to these Russians on this video game, these Russian people, and they were so cool and friendly and hip, and we were having fun. And then they started making fun of Black Lives Matter, and I got off, and I reported them, and I blocked them. And my thought was, why not have that conversation with them and say, well, I don't think black lives matter is funny and here's why. And, you know, and do it in a way that, you know, doesn't just make them log off, have, have a discussion, treat them as humans. And, you know, I mean, the example you give of the, the 
jazz musician and the KKK people is like extreme. Like not, not everybody has to do that. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. But if you happen to be in a place and someone is saying something that you find offensive, you know, don't block and report them and try to eliminate them from existing in the world because they still exist in the world. You know, if it's, if it's upsetting, you take that opportunity to turn it around and, and have sure. a good conversation with someone. I was thinking about this the other day. Um, when I was in grade school and, and people would, you know, be mean to me or make fun of me or bully me, I always ended up befriending them. <laughs> Those always ended up being my friends. And I was like, maybe sure. this is like, this is that coming out in me later on in life because <laughs> I just want to be friends with everyone. And I, you know, I want to talk to you about your opinions and I, I want us to all share. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I think, well, you're a good spokesperson then for the helpful, uh, <laughs> future community where people listen to each other yeah you know, I, so. I mean it's it's there's some 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 universal truths right like you know if you're always uh you know eye for an eye everybody's blind those kind of ideas right so mm-hmm. if you're just if you're just battling each other there's there's a there's a loss of 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 humanity that just you know it's just us and them again and so the idea that there could be uh some place and i i I, maybe this is how we were brought up. There was a point in my life where I said, I'm going to try to befriend all the people I don't like. Mm-hmm. Um, that happened to me too. And I, I, you know, I guess I am a little bit of a people pleaser and wanting to get along with everybody myself. But there was a goal there in mind, which is, no, there's a bigger person than I know. I'm judging this person for what they did or something that they were judging me for or whatever it was. And I was like, there's got to be common ground because we're just, we're just two kids from the woods of New Jersey, you know, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. and, 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 and it was profound. Like, you know, people I dislike the most, I had wonderful connections with just from that effort. Yeah. In this try. crazy town, maybe it's something about the town we grew up in. No, maybe, maybe. Because, because I feel like in high school too, like I just hung out with all the different groups, like, you know, maybe they didn't hang out with each other, but somehow I, ended up hanging out with all of them at different points West but you know I what don't I, know. yeah it's a it's a weird place it's weird <laughs> in jersey yeah, exactly. but I, I was thinking about this with you your art that you did in college your art like final project was yeah. like this it was like you empowered people with their own media the the camera right you gave everyone like these disposable cameras in like inner city new brunswick and you were like just take pictures of your life and you made this whole beautiful timeline out of it it was collaborative it was participatory and you did all that like i mean what when did you graduate 98 yeah it was like really before the internet but that's what the internet was like built for i mean yeah if, I, if, 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 if we if we could take the the Delilio thesis prog- pro- project as a as a template of future media. Let's let's go. It was. I mean, yeah. I I don't. I I do believe it was successful in that my name was not on it in the end. Like mm-hmm. it, my name was on it, just but merely. That's Wikipedia. At, yeah, it, it was. <laughs> no so there author. was so many so many people's names on it that nobody knew it was my thesis besides besides my professors. There was an article in the newspaper yeah. saying exhibit accuses mayor but they didn't say my name and <laughs> I, I, I didn't accuse the mayor i let people write on the wall i let people literally yeah. write on the wall of the george street you know a la ed Roche, every building on george street in new brunswick which is a socio-political statement in itself that's the only statement i made was merely documenting the street where it showed um you know beat up houses that were low-income houses to the starbucks and the j and j building you know whatever it was 
And then and so isn't that like a microcosm because it's like you were Jack Dorsey <laughs> and you were letting people say whatever they wanted on your platform. Yeah, yeah. And but what if they what if they came in and they found out who you were and they said you have to take those down, would you do it? Of course no, not, right? No, yeah, no. Not. But if and you're a multi-million CEO of a multi-million dollar company and had all these people telling you what to do, maybe. Yeah, I, it's crazy. Well, people, people, you know, when you have money, you worry about your money, you know. Well, I, I don't worry, I don't worry about my money. System. Yeah. <laughs> I don't worry about well, what money I don't have. <laughs> exactly. Well, that's the problem. You just have to stay poor. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's the, uh, maybe that's the agenda, really. All of us have to stay poor. <laughs> But I don't know. There, there was something great about yeah inviting in local artists. Little kids photographs were in there. Locals who were an artist had, had pictures in there. And then in the end, all I had all the the facts too. I like did the research. I had the city planning reports. The uh, urban planning center was bringing their classes in there to research the history of New Brunswick through my my thesis project. Well, it was collective intelligence, right? It, it wasn't just yes. you like putting out your opinion of what's going on in New Brunswick. It was like here, everybody tell me what's going on in new brunswick all right and, so maybe uh, we got to write another book together <laughs> yeah well you know what i was thinking so collective intelligence is you know interesting to me but i was thinking what about collective wisdom yeah, like, yeah how yeah. do we introduce morality back into this whole thing to make okay. it not just not just knowledge that you're smart and you know things and you can get get information but but all of that plus morality and ethics mm. how do you mm. do that well, collective wisdom is an interesting idea. It just be the the problem with it. It might just be quiet for two thirds of the media production, and then there's only one third of someone speaking. It's just quiet, <laughs> contemplating all of the information. <laughs> yes. Yeah. What we all really need to do is get off that internet more and think more. <laughs> well, on some level, I, I I like. I mean, I guess on some level, this collection of media that you are now part of is a little bit of that same thesis mindset, which is um, I'd never wanted to be a talking head on this thing. I always wanted another person to get me to think, make me realize stuff on air and have another voice, have a voice, you know? So there's people who've come on just to be excited on a podcast and excited to be on a podcast because they've never been on one and they like podcasts. Um, but it also, um, you know, gave them a chance to have a voice for posterity. So Whatever humble endeavor this is, it's kind of awesome to think of it as a collective intelligence, and maybe there's a little wisdom. So there's yeah. always a there's always a nugget of wisdom from my guest, at least two or three or four. Hopefully, everybody Absolutely. hears them. <laughs> yeah, I, I love I love the long form audio pack uh, audio format because you can really dive into things and get yeah. to know people, and you know, it's it's much better than yeah. like a five minute interview on. Sure. I mean, I, I probably could do like an edited 30 minute version, but we, you know, we have an hour and 10 minutes here and if people, if people are still listening, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> there were some nuggets of wisdom here at the end. We've just figured everything out. Hopefully you heard us. <laughs> collective intelligence, AKA let's shift it into collective wisdom from all voices being heard, even if they're completely opposing. How cool is that? Yes. And put out yeah, for this... people to take in. The solution to everything is buried deep, deep, deep in a comment on a YouTube video from 2009. You just have to find it. <laughs> That's great. That's great. That's, I, uh, of course, uh, yeah, there's always like, <laughs> yeah, I'm always thinking of uh, 
back to uh, Dirk Gently and you know, the, uh, life, the universe, and everything. Mm, what is yes. what is what is the answer? <laughs> it's on forty-two, right? 42. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, thank you so much for coming on. This was a fun conversation. I I I know that we agree with each other on a lot of things. So this was not an, two opposing viewpoints, especially since we are kin. Um, yes, <laughs> <laughs> I've had a very similar life experience, and uh, we're pretty Apparently. similar in a lot of ways. Besides the beard, you know, I got this beard. You yeah. don't have one of those. Well, um, one time I, I put a beard on with a Snapchat filter and I looked exactly like you. So <laughs> it was terrifying. We, we are twins. <laughs> We're twins. Yes. Y'all twins. Right. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, thank you so much for coming on. And uh, how do we follow along with what you're doing and uh, get notes or notice of the book coming out and et cetera? Um, I don't know because I don't. <laughs> I don't use anything anymore. No, no more Twitter. She got off. I'm no longer on Twitter. So, you so can uh, email me. You'll have to. Uh, <laughs> you know, anybody interested will have to look at um, the links on this and this podcast. So anybody in my audience will have a link to the book when it comes out. Yeah, um, and that will be. I'll, I'm Sally. You know, I'm, whether you want me to or not, I will post the same link on Instagram, on my yeah. Instagram. Do it, and I. I mean, you can post my my faculty webpage on coastal which has my email on it so there you go there you go <laughs> right, yeah I'll, I'll, I'll put that on there and right. I, if you don't mind i'll put your email like as a direct link too on the episode yeah sure well i don't know sometimes the spam bots grab those but yeah well if it's uh if it's an individual if, if it's an individual emailing you you'll probably get it yeah my, I, my it guys at my school are pretty good about catching stuff so cool <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, very good. Thank you so much. Have a great night. And uh, thanks for coming on Stolen Hours. You too. Thanks for having me. I'm very happy to be a part of it after listening to it for the last year. Thanks. Awesome. <laughs> Thank you. Right. Thanks for listening to All right, thank you for listening to another full episode of The Stolen Hours. Definitely uh, fun to have that conversation. Um, interesting and, and uh, eye-opening a lot of things that Kurt had to say. So hopefully uh, you know, get our hands on her book. So soon enough, I'll let you guys know when it comes out. Um, thank you always for following along on Instagram. For sure, subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening. And of course, check out www thestolenhourspodcast.com to see the links and everything to get to this uh, creative's um, you know, content. So um, check out Corinne's book and um, drop her an email for expert advice on media. And uh, as always, support Jay Agnes and his music, which you're listening to right now, out there in any streaming platform. All right, take it easy. Have a good day. You're enjoying right now. Peace.